You're listening to a special edition of Midori House, first broadcast on the 25th of December 2018 on Monocle 24. This is a special edition of Midori House, showcasing the best of Monocle 24's print media programme, The Stack. 30 minutes of print industry analysis, hosted by me, Tom Edwards. Now, this year on the programme, we spoke to editors of titles catering for all ages, quite literally, from toddlers to nonagerians. Everyone enjoys flicking through the pages of their favourite magazine. Let's start this look back with the kids, shall we? As a dad, I know pretty well that publishing for kids is no easy market. But one title, a favourite of the Edwards household, is Anorak, which has seemed to find the secret. The quarterly title, founded back in 2006, is aimed at 6- to 12-year-olds, and they also publish Dot for even younger kids, both designed to be as collectible as mum and dad's own favourite subscription mags. I spoke to the editor of Anorak, Cathy Almodilis. Uh, now, these are things of, of beauty, and it is interesting. I wonder, as a starting point, let's roll the clock on back to 2006. Did you just say, look, kids need to have something that's beautiful and collectible and well-designed, and it shouldn't just be garish, shouty, plastic nonsense, yeah. which I know from personal experience is what kids generally <laughs> both are sold and, and drawn yeah. to. Yeah. Um, was, it, was, that the, was that the driver? That was one of the main drivers. I had become a mum, you know, four years prior to that. And obviously during my 20s, I had been working in magazines. So I had the kind of the magazine itch within me. I wanted to launch my own. I became a mum in 2002. And in my 20s, I had worked in magazines like The Face and Sleaze Nation. So I always had had a kind of love for magazine, a passion for magazines, really. Mm. And when I became a mum, I, I kind of discovered that, you know, the magazine market had become quite polarised and very odd. Everything seemed to be kind of attached to a cartoon character or some kind of brand. It was an extension of something. They didn't seem to be like the magazines that I used to read when I was a child. Mm. So I thought, I'll launch one and see what happens. You know, obviously I had a little bit of experience, a little bit of contacts in the distribution world, although the door closed very quickly when I announced what I was doing, which obviously didn't fit in the kind of, you know, in the, the sort of standards. That's funny that though, had. isn't it? Because I would have thought that would really pique people's interest. And there'd no. be so many <laughs> other of your contemporaries who'd say, oh my God, about time, you know. Mm. But- so parents and, and contemporaries and illustrators, we had a lot of support there. However, on the distribution front, Thankfully, Borders was there and I knew them from uh, previous experience Mm. and they put a decent order through, but distributors were really reluctant. In fact, we couldn't get any distribution until we got Borders on on board. Mm. There was all sorts of things. The the fact that it was quarterly, the frequency was a problem for them. The fact that it didn't have any plastic toys on the front (laughs) cover was a problem. The fact that it was unisex was a problem, which it didn't even occur to me that 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 would be a problem, but it was apparently. And also they had a problem kind of fitting it into different shelves, so they weren't sure whether it should be within the parenting section or within the kids section. Mm. Too beautiful to be in the kids section and kind of not really for parents so it was 2006 was you know a bit of a struggle in education (laughs) it's it's funny it's almost as if uh, yeah our illustrious colleagues on the distribution side are maybe not as enlightened as they might be (laughs) heaven forbid we'd ever mention that on the the stack but it's interesting isn't it what what about what are we now 12 years on it's extraordinary and obviously so many editions what's been the biggest change has it been that sort of attitudinal shift when you explain to maybe people who aren't familiar with it what it is and why it is or is it just I don't know 
I don't know, is it easy? Is it easier now? It probably is. <laughs> well, I don't know. Does it yeah. ever get easy? Yeah, I think it's definitely easier. I think one of the things when I realized that distribution was going to be so difficult, the internet was just being born more or less then. Mm. So I decided to kind of use that. Um, social media's channels were just, you know, being born as well. So I decided to use that to sort of help promote the magazine and, and educate parents that there were other things on the market than just, you know, the, the, the plastic toys in the t- plastic tap um, that was on the mainstream shelves. And 12 years on, you know, we don't have to educate, thankfully, people anymore. It's just a matter of them being aware of what we do. But mm. generally speaking, there's a great awareness out there of what we do. And we've kind of created this little niche that's turned into a little small avenue, but it's still, you know, so we kind of sit in between the very, very independent titles um, and and also the kind of more mainstream titles. Well, yeah, let me ask you a bit about, so there's obviously Dot as well, which uh-huh. is for the sort of, I guess what we'd say in this country, preschool. Schooling. I guess that's yeah. the same er- yes. every, everywhere. Yeah. Again, it sort of makes sense and that's been around for a short time, but you're now branching that out into the Spanish language as yes. well, imminently, which yes. is very exciting. What was the origin story of that? Again, was it just this feeling that, hey, we're quite good at doing this. And what about the what about the under fives? So Anorak was very much a, a personal journey, if you like, a personal odyssey almost, because I'd become a mum and that's the kind of magazine I wanted to read with my son and I realised there were parents around me that needed the same. Dot was very much led by public demand, if mm. I may say so. I used to receive a lot of emails, I mean, a huge amount of emails, people asking me to do a younger version of Anorak because often young parents wanted something for their market for very young children. It's even more plastic tack and even more pink or blue. So it was very much public demand. I thought, okay, well, three years ago, I thought, well, let's give it a try and see what happens. And it's done really, really well, so well that, you know, we're now launching a Spanish edition on the 5th of March. Wonderful stuff. Well, yeah, my son would love a day in the life of, <laughs> of monkey, monkey, which I know you you wrote. I can see from that, which is which is yeah. brilliant. But tell me a bit about some of the mechanics here, because I know that also within the is it sort of Anorak Studio, mm-hmm. you're also doing other projects which are sort of more commercial in character, and that's something that's kind of crept up over the you know last couple of years. At what point was that just something that you thought? I don't know whether you were approached or did you say, hey, look, there's something we can also capitalise on this good position we've got, that early adopter advantage. Uh, at what point did that enter your thinking and, and what kind of a role does that play basically in the sort of viability of the whole of the whole business? Is that one of the key drivers? So Studio Anorak was born, we've always been asking the last kind of five to six years to do some stuff for other brands. So it, it would be maps, you know, there will be it might be colouring walls, it might be posters and things like this. Two or three years ago, I thought maybe we can turn this to something a little bit bigger and just give it a fancy title like Studio Anorak. And then two years ago, we were approached by the city of Hull, which was the city of culture in 2017. And most of the team were parents there, and they all subscribed to Anorak and Dot. And they thought it would be a great idea for all the primary school children of Hull to have a quarterly magazine that would celebrate the heritage of the city and the history of the city. So we created these four magazines for them. At the same time, by some serendipity, um, Airbnb got in touch and wanted also us to produce a magazine for an event they're doing with the uh, Natural History Museum called Dinosaurs. So Explore magazine was born. And then we also did the Scouts Association got in touch and wanted us to create an activity book for their leaders and also the children, the little scouts and beavers that go there. You sort of said 
almost, you know, serendipitously and mm. you have this thing where you think, actually, I don't see that there's what I want so I can start to do it. And then you kind of corner the you corner the market. And I guess it's that truism that if you stick with what you're passionate about and what you understand, actually the people do come. You don't need some crazy grand complex business plan. People are drawn to something that fills a niche that maybe they didn't even know was there, but it was definitely there. You've put it in much better words than I could <laughs> ever put it. But um, absolutely, and that's what's always been at the core of Anarak, I think, is authenticity. It comes from a very authentic place. You know, it's a mum, me, wanting a better magazine to read with my child, and it kind of runs through everything that we do. And I think with a little bit of patience, the audience just find you and then become your best ambassadors. Mm. A lot of the people who work with us, a lot of our clients, from Studio Anorak are actually subscribers and they come to us because they love the magazine and they, they're waiting for that project where we can come on board and help them. So it's been hugely organic. It's been absolutely you know, amazing and I'm very grateful that it's happened that way. The first kind of five years of the, of the, the life of Anorak was very much, it was very much a project, had this kind of on the side. And then five years into it, I decided to turn it into a business, not knowing at all what a business plan was, was a strategy. Never let those details None get of those in the things, way, you know. Kathy, that's but the actually, thing. it's been incredible because I have been managed to bumble along, but actually create a sizable business with a great loyal audience. Um, so I feel very, very grateful. Now, for those that are a little bit older, there's another title in the market that certainly had a great 2018. The Week Junior, which, as the name suggests, is a children's version of news title The Week. Aimed at the 8- to 14-year-old market, The Week Junior aims to be informative and fun at the same time. But of course, a magazine aimed at kids brings many challenges. How to cover hugely complex issues from terrorism to climate change when you're dealing with impressionable and potentially fearful young minds. Well, to find out more, the Week Junior's editor, Anna Bassi, spoke to Monocle's own Fernando Augusto It was actually quite a difficult one to produce for all sorts of reasons. We wanted to write about the heatwave, but we're writing for children. And of course, the heatwave, while for them, has been really exciting, lots of sunshine, going to the beach. In other parts of the world, it's been quite difficult to deal with. And as we were creating last week's issue, the wildfires in Greece caused just absolute devastation. So we had to really think carefully about how to strike the balance between the fun side of hot summers and actually the serious nature of that wildfires, global warming and all the rest of it. And actually we ended up picking that particular picture because we did want it to look fun. One of the challenges we face with a magazine every week is making sure that whatever we're writing about and however serious it is and often it can be quite serious that we don't make our readers feel unduly anxious about anything and obviously a front cover has to be bright and appealing anyway so we found a way of having a fun image on the cover it actually shows some kids in Tokyo cooling off in some water fountains because there's been a heat wave there as well but are the words that we used on the covers communicated the slightly more serious side of things so this is all about this looks like they're having loads of fun and they are and it's great but actually it's not all fun in the sun and this is why 
And and I would like to ask you, tell us a bit more about the story of the Week Junior. I mean, I know the Week, which is a fantastically very successful weekly publication. When when did it started? So we launched the Week Junior in November 2015. So it's almost three years old now. And the idea for it um, actually came about about a year before that. Uh, so the Week magazine's been around for about 20 years, um, and it's incredibly successful. And my publisher realised that actually a lot of secondary schools were using the week within schools and a lot of sort of young teenagers were reading the week and actually suddenly it seemed so obvious that there would be an appetite for something for a younger audience as well. That was how it was born. It was really just a moment of, well, there's a gap in the market, there's nothing out there that's communicating news and current affairs to kids in a way that makes sense to them. So they then set about developing the week junior and and this is what we came up with, something that's bright, cheery, but incredibly informative. And what's the age range? I mean, what's your public? What do you have in mind? It's eight to 14, loosely. Um, we certainly have readers as young as seven and as, uh, and as old as 70, I think. Um, mm-hmm. I probably our core readers are somewhere between 10 and 12. Tell us about the circulation. Of course, we know that the week has been, you guys believe in print because people are buying more copies, especially, you know, so many things that are happening with Brexit, yeah. you know, the Trump election. Do you felt the same with the week, Junior? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've had a great success story, actually. So we launched in November 2015, as I said, we had fairly moderate targets for the magazine, which we completely smashed within the first year. And we now have a weekly circulation of around 60,000. We feel very strongly about print. I've always worked in print magazines. And I think there was a real appetite, especially amongst parents, who are the people who are actually buying this magazine, to get their kids away from their screens for at least some of the time. I think we've all got to the point now where we realise that screens are a big part of life, but you don't want to be on a screen all the time. And it's not always the best place to read either. If you, you know, I think that the experience of reading something on paper and that very sort of tactile experience is important and you know luckily we've been proved right and what are the challenges to write to this public i mean you did kind of mention this when you're covering you know, the heat wave because you wanted something fun and light but at the same time you know showcasing that there's been some problems mm. with the heat wave as well i think you have to kind of be extra careful as well right we have to be super careful i mean the first thing for us is actually when we decide which stories we'll cover in the magazine and, and you know we'll write about almost anything from the most serious stories obviously over the past couple of years we've had to write several stories about terrorist attacks which has been you know incredibly difficult and in fact our first issue unfortunately coincided with the attacks in Paris so you know within our first week we were thrown into the situation of having to decide how we tell this story to a child and I think the first thing for us is always and it doesn't matter what the subject is actually it's always figuring out what questions they might have and how best to answer them and how best to answer them honestly but without giving them so much information that they don't know what to do with it, making sure they aren't left with unanswered questions that could lead them to feel more concerned. So we work very hard to sort of think about our wording very carefully. We always try and provide context to our stories because, you know, you can't assume that a child will understand the background to the civil war in Syria or to understand global warming, for example, when we're writing about heat waves. So we always provide context. We always answer questions. We avoid going into any more detail than we have to. Um, and we always try and offer some sort of positive takeout. So, you know, there will always be a silver lining in there somewhere for somebody It can be challenging. Do the kids sometimes visit the office or do you have some kind of 
test groups, you know, just to check we what do. are they interested. Yeah, we do have kids coming into the office. We actually have a we we have a reader panel, so we occasionally ask them for their opinions about things. We actually use a social media app called Pop Jam, which you may or may not have heard of. It's like a, a kind of like an Instagram for under 13. So it's very well moderated and it's very safe space. And we can use that to communicate with our readers. We can ask them questions and pitch out debate ideas and, and get their opinions and things. I'm also quite lucky in that I have two children of my own who are perfectly within our target age range. I've got a nine-year-old and a 12-year-old. So between them and their friends, I have a pretty good idea about what's going on in the playground, what they're interested in, what they understand and what they want to know about. And it's amazing what you're doing as well, because, you know, when, when kids from eight to 14 are starting to read this, probably when they become adults, they will keep reading print in a way. I, I, I think that's the kind of, I mean, don't you feel that your role is very relevant for well, the I next generation so. of readers? I hope so. I hope so. And, and again, another of the things that we thought about when we launched the magazine was how do we make this really accessible to a wide range of children? Because obviously that's quite a big age difference actually between 8 and 14 in terms of ability to read and interest and so on. So the magazine's been designed in such a way that reading is a very easy thing to do. It's very easy to navigate. It's not like other children's magazines that are designed with a sort of, they're all about fun and colour, but sometimes that actually can prevent a child from reading it properly. So it's all about reading. It's all about being accessible. Yeah, I hope that we do inspire a generation of children to go on to be adult readers. And, and listen, I, I'm just looking here at the cover. I, I would buy this magazine, How to Tell If a Horse is Happy. I'm generally curious. <laughs> you know, so. It's all in the snorts. Yeah, oh, see, that's, that's perfect. <laughs> and I also have, uh, I have here Science and Nature. Tell us a bit more. It's a new project that yes. you guys are doing. Yeah, so Science and Nature is our new launch and it's very exciting. We're actually launching it as a monthly magazine in September. This has grown out of the fact that as a result of the um, information we've gathered from our reader survey, we understand that animals and science are two mm -hmm. of the most popular parts of the weekly magazine. Obviously, in a weekly magazine with only two pages for science, for example, in every issue, we don't have much opportunity to explain things as well as we might like or to look at things in as much depth as we might like. So we thought we'd try out uh, a magazine dedicated to science and nature. So we've done two spin-off special edition magazines, um, which have done extremely well for us. And so, yeah, really excited to say we're going to be launching that as a monthly. Let's move on on the programme to, well, I guess magazines targeted at my kind of demographic. And one of my favourites is the iconic men's title, Fantastic Man. They decided to innovate with their spring-summer edition with eight different covers. They decided to look at age, as we're doing, featuring older men, teenage boys on their covers. Featuring everyone from teenagers to uh, slightly older men on their covers. Monocle's Fernando Augusto Pacheco spoke to Fantastic Man's creative director, Jop van Bennekom. Yeah, so we have eight different covers with four men in older age, uh, like set between 17 and 80. And we have four covers with young teenagers, like 14, 15, one of 18 actually, or 17, I think. But basically, men and boys normally don't get to the cover of a magazine at that age. So in a way, it's also like an kind of an anti-cover or uh, the normal ordinary people by juxtaposing young and old we just try to talk about age and different generations of men which is the theme of this issue 
And in terms of production, is, is it the first time you're doing different covers as well? Is it a bit more complicated, you know, when you when you go to the printer and or, or not? Or it was a good challenge for you? No, it was. It's actually not so not so difficult to do print print wise, and also not so not so expensive. It's just it's more that we I think for a long time we wanted to be that one magazine who didn't do multiple covers because there's so many other magazines in our field of biannual publications that actually are doing so many different covers that you don't hardly know which 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 issue you are looking at anymore which i think is kind of problematic at the news at the newsstand so we always wanted to be that one magazine that just does one cover but i had this idea of doing a story that plays out visually on the newsstand and they're like images are actually linked to each other they're part of the same photo shoot and i thought that was a nice experiment to do so it doesn't have anything to do with also giving into that sort of demand of doing multiple covers and trying to uh, create something almost Instagram-like. It was more about doing this experiment and creating also a bit of excitement around the magazine and the cover. I think that that really works, yeah. No, it did work. And, and, and you, as you mentioned, you know, it, there are eight covers, but they, they are very much fantastic, man. And they tell a story, all the eight covers together, in a yes, way. Yes, exactly, yeah. You mentioned Instagram there. I mean, of course, the magazine, of course, is the main product. What What's your relationship with online, also as the creative director of the magazine? Well, this is also ever-changing. I think a lot of magazines and a lot of... I think brands and institutions they don't feel so much at home in, on Facebook. I think Instagram gives you just a platform to show more of your editorial in a way or give a glimpse of the editorial or just send out one little message. And we really, since a year, we really upped our game on Instagram and producing actually things, especially for Instagram, uh, which we would do previously for our website. So, yeah, Instagram is very important at the moment, yeah. And one thing I was going to ask, not only Fantastic Men change, but fashion very much, especially menswear. One thing that I always liked about Fantastic Men, there's always like a cheeky side to it, you know, there's the uh, like a humor behind. And it's interesting because I think fashion's moving moved towards that. How did you sense the change in fashion since you started uh, the magazine? Or, or you guys perhaps don't care so much about the trends? Well, we never care so much about the trends. I think also things are moving in menswear on a very slow pace, especially like there's never really big shifts. It's just menswear feels more, it gets updated rather than with women's wear. You you know, they're, 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 they're real trends. And sometimes the way women dress can drastically change from one year to another. I think in the 12 years, there has been a massive change, I think, for men just in general, because I think men in general became very fuzzy about what they're wearing, what they're drinking, what they're eating, are they wearing a fragrance or not, where are they going on holidays. All those kind of things became quite of important markets, I think, for a lot of brands. And a lot of brands have been experimenting with men's luxury and um, creating pro uh, products for, for men Uh, on a very high level, let's say, and with a high, very high price. And that's sort of, that's, that's maybe the biggest shift in the last couple of years, that men's luxury didn't take off the way brands thought it was going to take off. And you see right now, uh, especially with Vetements and, and how younger people, millennials, dress, that streetwear became very, very dominant, also for luxury brands right at the moment. 
You spoke about teenagers. Do you have an image of the reader of Fantastic Man, or or you honestly think he can be from a teenager, or a guy perhaps like Stephen here on the cover? <laughs> well, this is one of the reasons why we made this issue about age, because there's a kind of confusion almost about who is the reader, and I really believe there's not one reader, but we grown up ourselves with the magazines and we were not, we're right now middle-aged men and we see young young people also reading the magazine and buying it and so we have the feeling that we need to cater for a lot of people and a lot of people with different backgrounds also culturally so not only is this issue and a couple of shoots that actually deal with different generations of men we also have like a very very broad editorial spectrum of shoots happening in different parts of Europe and the world, uh, different ages. Very big one in Rio. We have like retired grandpas in Ireland. We have just an, an, an extremely big scope of guys, boys and men. And yeah, there's, there's an immense diversity in this issue. And there's a, there's a great uh, diversity in age and race and backgrounds. And we also change, what also changed this issue a little bit is we did less, let's say, only visual-driven stories, but a lot of like very editorial-driven stories. So you feel there's just so much editorial material in there. And that's, I think, what people really appreciate about this issue. It feels like everything is talking to you and everything has a voice and an idea and an opinion and, and a sense of humor and a joy to it. I think that's very fantastic, man, when things feel kind of joyful and just brings a smile to your face. Finally on the programme, we leaf through the pages of a magazine for women aged between 40 and 60. Renaissance is a beautifully conceived and executed title, and it's cleverly edited too by Michaela Lowe. Let's hear more of her story. I came to Renaissance magazine without no experience in publishing. My objective was to make a difference in the magazine world. I love magazines, I've always bought magazines, I come from a graphic design background, I, pre- I appreciate the paper, the smell of it, the touch of it. But as I turned 40 myself, I felt like when I got inside a magazine shop, there was a lot of ma- wonderful magazine, but not targeting towards me, always really young models. And if there were older models, they were retouched in a way which I felt send a really strong negative message about aging I think there is a gap in life, I would say maybe between 40 to 60, where probably you don't feel young, but you don't feel old. And you want to see representation in the media. So Renaissance was my challenge project as I turned 30 and I wanted to climb my own mountain. I took six months to learn what is publishing. I talked with people who published themselves. I listened to your show. I read the books, blogs. And then I made my own rules, what's right for me, what's not right for me. And my main rule was that I'm enjoying the lessons, I'm wearing different hats, and I, there is nothing like a mistake. 
Uh, that's great. I might just get you to, if we just move your mic a little bit, just talking slightly more into it. So I'll just, I'll shuffle it if we're going to face that way. So you're a bit more on okay. mic. There we go. Um, well, that's incredibly brave of you. I wonder, is that what everyone said? Did they say you're brave or did they say you must be mad to do this? Because, and also, I'm impressed that you felt like you could sort of learn enough in just six months, which is not a great, that's not a huge amount of time. <laughs> well, my husband thinks I'm crazy. <laughs> I also have two little kids and they kind of like understand that mum, mummy is running a magazine and I think it's a sense of pride, but it's definitely take over your life mm. in the most deepest way because it's kind of like a one business, one woman business show. I mean, I have a lot of contributors, but I wear so many hats from admin to PR to editing to working with the printers and the distributors. And we should, for each issue, we should between five to, five to eight editorials across the world. So we should from New York, LA and Berlin and Sydney. So it's a lot of work, but... I, as I've said, I really wanted to challenge myself and go out of my comfort zone. And I guess what's interesting about Renaissance is that it is itself, it's not just you on that personal journey, but it is, as you as you also described very elegantly at the beginning, this idea of asking these more fundamental questions about how fashion is covered, what the demographics are, are people getting what they actually want? Are they getting positive representations of themselves almost? Do you find that people are acclaiming you for that side of things, for challenging the stereotypes. I mean, just to be clear, in case some of our listeners may not be familiar, the idea here is that everyone who you shoot is over 40. And it's not not to... Well, it's, it's a renaissance. The clue is in the, is in the title, right? It's just to make people think again and say challenge perceptions do you do you find people are coming and saying look i love that you've done this you you've articulated a feeling that i've i've had myself is that does that happen to you yeah and in fact i'm really amazed by the level of contributors that we manage to attract mm. and the level of photographers and the level of models and each issue i feel like wow we have just achieved the highest i could imagine and next issue i get even more impressed but to say that image image is a really p important part of the magazine, but also I wanted to put the same emphasis on the writing and I wanted to take a little bit of radio approach to writing. So all the interviews and essays that we have are without any Im imagery. Hmm. I think in our digital wor world that we flip, flip, flip through everything and we want fast, fast, fast answers, it's nice to actually just have... A flip through the magazines, only through the images, and then once you really want to deep dive in, there are some really serious, deep <laughs> essays and interviews, not just related to age, but just related to our life and our reflection, hmm. some big questions about the way we live. Well, I was going to specifically ask you about that, because obviously it's very striking that you do have that unaccompanied text, which I rather like, because you sort of drift away and you you feel like you're reading an almost like an academic publication. And then you come back to the next shoot, with, which is obviously really the fantastic sort of creative eye. It was interesting that you said that radio approach, because it does, it feels a bit like, it feels kind of more conversational. I don't know if that sort of makes sense. You're nodding very politely. Do, do you think that's one of the advantages of not having a long history in magazines, was that you were able to really tear up the kind of guidelines and do things like that, which are quite challenging structurally? Yeah, I think I think so as well. And I think in nowadays, magazines are, have to redefine themselves. Mm. And I think that many magazines are still think traditionally, but I was inspired by amazing, amazing publications like The Gentlewoman, Rika Magazine, Violet. I'm a freaking reader of Monocle. Just magazines that 
look at their readers as intelligent person that wants to dive into a content that will take them further than just one flip through a magazine. And McKenna, it's interesting because although you talk about this innovation and clearly the, the idea, the concept is, there's something, and I mean this only positively, sort of traditional though about the shoots. They're not crazy, challenging. You're not looking at it and trying to work out which way up you should be looking at the magazine. It's not serious at all. There's lots of fun and it's very beautiful, but there is something quite traditional. You know, some of the sort of portraits are rather rather classical does that reflect your love of the traditional fashion publications i guess a bit yeah and also the models are between 40 to 60 i wanted something that doesn't come as a crazy statement but more just like as a natural statement Mm. that with age come grace and beauty and style it doesn't need to be avant-garde it just could be beautiful aesthetically and pleased to the eye and we shouldn't be more thinking anti-aging. We should be thinking about, ah, cool aging. Nice one. Well, let's talk a bit about that because we've seen fashion brands, for example, who've embraced having campaigns, specific campaigns fronted by older models. You think back to things like, I don't know, Joan Didion did a, a Celine commercial, for example, going back not, not that long ago. And there have been others. Joni Mitchell did a was it YSL campaign. Really striking. How do you feel about those campaigns? Because they, they see, they're making a statement, a one-off. Yeah. And then it seems like a lot of these brands sort of revert to type. Whereas you're saying, look, this is what we're we're doing. Is it all good, though? Do you welcome older models, re- more real models, even if it's just for one campaign or if it's a whole sea change? Is it all good? And is the industry learning that it needs to be more representative in how it portrays people? I think there is a change, but it's a very slow change. Mm. I mean, when you look at the demographics... And when you look who has the money to buy brands like, well, I don't want to mention names, but you would think that the brands will have all the models on a regular basis, not just as a one-off campaign, nor as something that you want to use for your press. And also, I think sometimes the models they use are so old. I'm not saying let's take it to the extreme. I'm saying there is a gap between the 20 typical 20 years old model that you always use to the one of 60 to 80 years model that you use. There's like 40 years here. Just, you know, fashion, it's not just campaigns, it's also fashion shows, it's also Mm. imagery that you have in your catalogue and on your website. It's just saying it's okay to age. You're not old when you're 40 and we love the way you look. And also with Renaissance, we really aim towards being a retouch-free magazine. And that's all we have time for on this very special edition of the programme. My thanks to our producer, Fernando Augusto and our editors, Cassie Galpin and Sarah Miles. If you have comments or queries, if you just want to send a Christmas hello, send it to fernando at fp at monocle.com. And don't forget to tune in to The Stack every week to sate all of your print appetites. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Tom Edwards. Until next time, it's goodbye from me and a very Merry Christmas. Thank you.